We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arsenal fashion conspires to end our unbeaten run by handing us a difficult fixture. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You bought me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right. Everything was rolling wrong nicely. Unbeaten run. Just give us easy games. Bottom half of the table. Come on, keep it going. Keep it. But no. Away to Anfield, they said. And so the unbeaten run comes to an end. But there's a lot more to it than that. And I think we will spend most of today diving into the Premier League's uh, conspiracy against Arsenal and why they handed us this picture. No, I'm kidding. We'll talk about how this happened, a first half that maybe left some of us, not all of us, but some of us feeling emboldened, a second half that left most of us feeling miserable, and what it all means in the context of a season where three clubs quite clearly separate themselves from the rest. There's a messy middle. We are clearly in that messy middle. Where we can finish within it, well, that remains to be seen, but this was a measuring stick day, and uh, as they say in Jaws, we're going to need a bigger stick. Um, yeah, quite a golfing class, but that's okay. By the way, an announcement from Arsenal just came out. They have moved the Barcelona women's uh, tie to 7 p.m. to accommodate more people being able to attend. So it sounds like ticket sales are going great. Uh, I think the Emirates is going to be rocking for that game, and I hope that if you have a chance to go, you definitely will. So uh, just bear in mind that more tickets have now opened up, and it's a, it's a 7 p.m. kickoff now, which may accommodate more people, actually. Uh, sort of an earlier night might help. So something to think about there. Now, we are going to dive into uh, all the various aspects of, of this game and, and what it means. So we'll do that with Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stoberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. And Clive, you can find him on Twitter at Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. And Paul, you can find him on Twitter at Pause My Pants. Hello, Pause. Woohoo. Woohoo, indeed. I, yeah, I think, look, the, the problem with these games is that they hurt. They hurt. It hurts to lose 4 0. It hurts to see Arsenal laid low in that fashion. And as a result, the emotional reaction to the result can obscure the analysis. And so trying to keep those two things straight is hard. I, I think the interesting question I would ask people is, if you have updated your priors based on this game, why? Right? That, that's the thing. I, I think there's a lot that we need to dive into here. But for me, 
There's nothing I thought was good about Arsenal going into this game that I think differently about now. There's nothing I thought was bad about Arsenal going into this game that I think differently about. I think all of the things I thought about Arsenal are still true because I don't know that this game changes any of those realities, but it's still worth exploring why this game played out the way it did and if it should have played out differently. And Clive, you and I spoke about this, so I'll start with you. I think that Arteta's biggest choice, and we talked about this so much in the lead-up. In fact, I sort of apologized on Thursday's pod that we spent most of it talking about which way of losing (laughs) would be the best way of losing. Um, As it turns out, this was not the best way, but at halftime, maybe it was. In a way, at halftime, we were sort of losing the way I hoped we might be, and at full-time, we weren't. The big decision point for Arteta was stick with the lineup and tactics that had been working and use it as a measuring stick and learn from it or change it for this game to something that maybe protects the badge, protects the team a little more, but doesn't give you that same education. He decided to go with the lineup and tactics that had been working with the players he had been trusting. And I'm curious if you think it was the right call and whether it was better to learn in the way we did painfully or with the benefit of hindsight to have been safe and protect the badge. Yeah, so different ways of losing. Maybe it's, it's different degrees of learning, as you alluded to. Then I think that that was it for me. How much did we want to learn? I had a, I had one or two little doubts, but I, I was clear. I said I wasn't worried which way we went, as long as we learned something. I think that was the key. I had a feeling just because of my <laughs> my elder statesman years that I thought it might be a a tough day for Smith Rowe. I, I just felt it was going to be after the previous week that he'd had, right? It's once in a lifetime making your debut for England, first 11, the world looking at you, doing well, scoring a goal, lots of interviews. I thought, mm, should we should we sit him down for this one? Very hard to justify that when he does, he scores all our goals, has all our assists. That doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't make sense. When, when, as the game transpired, you, you realize that maybe it's one game too many for him. There are a couple of other people that you think, well, maybe it's one, two game many for them. And there's a couple of older statesmen up top that we maybe saw a couple of their limits, but we sort of all knew this stuff. And I think it's important to to learn it, really. I, I really do. I think it's important to have this benchmark. And, and we wouldn't have this benchmark if we played high behind the settee football. We, we just wouldn't know. Right? So, so now we know. I think if, if I said to everybody, give me two or three positions you want to upgrade in January or the summer, I think we'd all agree which they were. And so we're getting some real clarity here. And I totally agree with you about update your priors. We we knew this stuff, and it's just and it's just been it's just been clarified to me. And I think, if anything, there was more encouragement in this four 0 than I think we lost with it. I, I got a three one in my head, or three last time you went there. Yeah, three one. I think Lacazette scored, but in garbage you know, time. Nothing, yeah, nothing about us. Yeah, <laughs> garbage time goal. It's nothing about us. We were hanging the home on. Game, I think the home game last season, the last time we played him, was, was worse in some respects, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I must admit, I didn't, have, I didn't watch his game live. I watched it retrospectively, as I did Man City. And so the, I do not have the I watch his game live emotional scars going through me. I yeah. watched it cold. I was speaking to my son as, the, as Arteta was fighting on the sideline and I was punching the air metaphorically mm-hmm. saying, get in there, my son, let him have it. And so this is what I was thinking. And so, so when you watch it cold, you say, okay, now I know what's happened. 
this is this is just is what it is. So I'm fairly sanguine, Elliot, but for those who saw it live and went through the emotion may have a different feeling. Watching the goals pour in the second half felt bad. And that bad feeling is going to infect the way you react to the game. I guess what I meant by my priors, though, and you sort of hit on it, is just like, if you think Arteta's arsenal has an attack problem, I'm inclined to agree with you, but not as it relates to this game. If you think we have a keep possession problem or a quick passing out from the back problem in terms of our accuracy and our execution, I'm inclined to agree with you, but not because of this game. This game, when you play the absolute best teams potentially in the world, what it does is it amplifies every flaw and minimizes every strength because your strengths will not show through as much as they could and your flaws will be ruthlessly exposed. So it's an interesting way to learn the biggest pain points, the biggest vulnerabilities in your team, which we certainly did. Um, Tim, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you the same question quickly and then get on to another one. Is your instinct that sticking with the same team was the right move? I think the biggest decision point for me, I thought maybe Maitland-Niles for, for Lakonga, but the bigger decision point was clearly Tierney for Tavares. I think a lot of people will look back and with the benefit of hindsight, be wise after the fact and say, clearly it should have been Tierney. The interesting thing though is, when you look at how Tavares quote-unquote failed in this game, Tavares did not fail as a defender. He failed mm. in that he had some bad giveaways that hurt us, and that is not, I think, what you would have been worried about. If you were going to play Tierney, I think you would have said, we need that defensive reliability. I don't think Tavares got exposed that I can think of too much defensively. It was giveaways. But so that's the big decision point. In general, the decision is sort of stick with what's been working. For you, is that right or wrong? Yeah, I, I thought it was totally right for the reasons that Clive alluded to. I, I think I think we needed this in a way. I mean, look, no one needs to lose 4-0, um, but I completely agree that at least, and, and I'm not saying this will definitely happen because there's work to do, but there has to be a reaction to this. And I, I think there is something for Arteta work, to work with there. Um, yep, definitely. I, I had a slight preference for Tierney playing um, ahead of Tavares, but I can't pretend I was hugely bothered um, about keeping Tavares in, particularly when you know that Arteta is very much about meritocracy and keeping people going when they're playing well. I get that. Um, and that's fine. Again, if you were, you know, if you we're going to talk hindsight, maybe even playing El Nenny might have might have been um, a bit more of a security blanket in this game. In that, I don't think he'd he'd turn the ball over like Lakonga did. But then, what do we learn from that? I mean, El Nenny's going to leave at the end of the year. We know what he is. We know that he's a safe passer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But he's not our future, so th- there's no point in learning. You know, th- there's just nothing to learn. I don't think um, if you do that. So, I, I I do think we kind of needed that. Um, I think the shame is really that that our kind of our senior players. I mean, I'm sure we'll have the Thomas Party conversation. But when your senior players are your centre forwards, and you're in a game like this, and the game's all happening behind them. It's difficult, you know. We we could probably do with another kind of leader in that spine somewhere. Or I say leader. I think we've got leadership there, but like a bit more nous and experience somewhere in that spine. Because when it's your two forwards and they just get cut off from the game completely, it it just doesn't doesn't have enough impact. So yeah, I, I think there are a couple of player young players that you know maybe uh, rabbit in the headlights type stuff, and we'll see how they respond to that. That they might not. It might it might crush them, Elliot. Um, mm. It might Senderos them. It might Giroud them. 
Um, but it might not, it, it might, they might learn from it. And, and the quicker we find that information out, the better. So I still think that there was, there was a value to doing it this way. I, I guess what I'd say, um, just to wrap that, that thought up, I, I have said the last few podcasts, I do think there are gaps in this kind of four, four or this four, two, two, two system. I think Lester found some gaps in it. Um, in particular, and while it's quite new, and I, I think Liverpool really found some gaps in it just by outnumbering us um, mm. in different areas of the pitch because they've got the quality to do that. Um, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back and change the shape, to be honest. Then let me stick with you just for a second, Paul. Get to you just real quick here, but like uh, I, I look at the really good teams and I look at their midfield and they have three midfielders in general. I mean, not exclusively. I know there's some teams playing more of a back five where it's not really like that, but this, this business of having sort of a double pivot and then an attacker who sort of drops in, you come up against a team that really does have a midfield three and midfield just looks like a place that we, we can't control it. We can't keep it. We can't play through it. And so it goes out to the fullbacks a lot you wind up with situations like Ben White feeling like he has to carry it in, into a cul-de-sac. Smith Road did that a couple of times. Tavares clearly did. And I, I'm starting to wonder if some of that originates in midfield. And, mm-hmm. you know, you could say, oh, you know, this is where we miss Shaka. And this were, the, the Goldilocks stuff has to stop. The, oh, if this player was available, then it would all work. We've seen it fail. We've seen Shaka fail against Anfield. We've seen Shaka party fail. Like, the reality is that Liverpool didn't have their best midfield. I don't think that they would have Oxlade-Chamberlain in, the, in their three, but they have Fabinho, they had Thiago, they had Oxlade-Chamberlain. It could be Fabinho, Thiago, and Keita. It could be Fabinho, Keita, and Henderson, whatever it is, but it's a mm-hmm. three, and that space is controlled by them. And we've seen teams that can control the middle of the pitch against us easily. So is there is there a need to go to a three? And I guess where I'm going with this to some extent is, can Odegaard be that guy? Because he's more midfielder than Lacazette, but I'm not sure he's a midfielder in the true sense. So how do you see that part of the pitch? Because for me, as I watch these big games, it feels like a glaring weakness. Yeah, yeah, I I definitely agree with that. And that that is a bit of a conundrum, right? Because then if you bring in like a third midfielder who is, let's say you don't think Erdegaard can do that and you start, you play like another, say, more natural central midfielder. Well, Emery did that and we had, oh, he's playing three DMs, even though like <laughs> Genduzi is not um, a DM and neither Sabios, but you get the whole, he's playing three DMs, what's going on here? Um, and, and it is, it, look, it's a conundrum all teams have to solve unless you can get like a 12th player on the pitch, how you have that balance b- between defence and attack. And we know that Arsenal don't have it yet, um, particularly, I think, because we don't quite have the forwards that Arteta wants um, to create that balance because the sections of the team, as we saw, as we've seen many, many times, just get cut off too easily. And I think you're right. Um, some of that is about well, a lot of that is about midfield. I, I agree. I don't think it would have been an awful lot better with. Ja- I, I think we might have failed in a different way with Xhaka. I don't see him turning the ball over um, in the manner that maybe Lukonga did. But at the same time, like you've highlighted there, that Liverpool, it doesn't really matter who they play in midfield. They just they're so well drilled. They've got such a unit there. They're all about 29 years old. They've all been together for five years. It doesn't matter who they play in midfield. They all do the same things. Um, and and that's you know that's the benefit of having a team together for that long. We don't have that yet. We definitely don't have that. We don't have that in many areas of the team. We definitely don't have it in midfield. 
you know, we haven't really moved on from Xhaka yet. We've got Party in there who I think it's fair to say probably inconsistent, um, judged against his actual quality since he arrived. So I, it is a problem, and I don't know how we find that balance because if you start taking attacking players out, we don't create enough chances either. So I don't think we can really countenance taking that attacking player out. Um <coughs> It, I think a lot of it just depends who we're playing and when. And honestly, on this occasion, we're just playing an older team um, with a lot more nows who've been playing the same way for five years and pretty much no one's found an answer to it anyway. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the other thing is Liverpool playing waves and bursts. And when they had their waves and bursts, they scored. But they give you something and we weren't able to take anything in those kind of lull periods, I guess. Well, let's talk about that specifically, and this is a good chance to bring Paul into the podcast who's been sitting patiently, but if you are uh, yearning for a Paul-centric episode, the instant reaction on the Patreon side is very Paul-heavy and very excellent, so I certainly recommend it. Paul, welcome. Um, Let's talk first half in a positive light, though, before we get on to some of the more specifically negative aspects of this performance, because I know there's some people that didn't even like the first half, and that's totally fair. Again, we were losing and we were under the cosh for large stretches, but like you're going away to the best team maybe in Europe. And I thought we were in the game. We were doing the things I wanted to see, which is hold them out to some extent. Remember, this is the best attack in the Premier League, so they're going to hurt you. But do they give things up at the other end? They have this season. And I, I felt that the really frustrating part of the first half for me is that when we went the other direction, when we were able to get them on the back foot a bit, we squandered the opportunities. I think Bukayo Saka had the best opportunity to make a goal for us when he chose to shoot in the box and it was blocked and I don't think the shot was on and he had two players with him. But there were a number of sort of situations like that. I'm going to ask you a question that you're not going to like the framing of it. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. But feel free to answer it in any way you want. Do you think that LFC, I have it written down here as LFC, do you think Liverpool held back their press early? It didn't feel like that that python grip it didn't feel like the boa constrictor early on and is that did that play a role in why we were able to play or do you think there was something specifically good that we were doing in the first half that we couldn't continue because i watched it again and it felt a little flat and when we come on to the arteta and klopp confrontation maybe this will come up but it felt a little flat from liverpool and i can't decide if that was a choice or if we were just handling it better than we did how do you how do you view that um, I think two teams were trying to get to grips with each other. Um, they didn't exactly know how we were going to play. And for example, we played aggressively out from the back, uh, from kickoffs and in open play. And people will say, we always play out from the back. No, we don't. Mm. Uh, more than half the time we go long from kickouts against weaker teams. So I don't think Liverpool at Anfield thought we were going to basically play almost every ball out from the back. They pushed up really aggressively. Um, We struggled with it a little bit, but we fumbled our way through, and a couple of times we played through it quite nicely. Um, I'm going to say some things that upset a lot of people. Um, Why should today be any different? (laughs) Yeah, Sambi was great. He was fucking great. I don't think people disagree with that in the first half. They did with me. Really? Yeah. Oh, Just because of what I said on the instant reaction part. I think party was okay. I think it was in the toughest part of the pitch. I think that was the area they 
uh, targeted. It gave Sambia a little bit more freedom. But, I mean, Liverpool always target that area because if they can force a turnover there, they have you dead to rights. So I think Party was okay in the first half. I don't think he got to show much, do much. I think he was mostly functional and okay. And people complained about him playing it side to side. But that's what he should have done because that's where the space was. He'd played out to Nuno or, or Sack on the right and he did okay. I think Sambi was great. I think Gabriel... Uh, somehow nobody said anything about Gabriel. He was fucking awesome in the first half. Uh, He was all over. Between him and Nuno, I think they did a really good job on Salah and uh, TAA and whoever came down that side. Um, I think uh, uh, Tomiyasu generally was pretty good. Uh, White was mostly good playing out. Uh, but had a he had a couple of moments. He, I remember the bit you're talking about about playing it upfield. I mean, big deal. He got caught once. Is how I feel about it. And he had a left-footed kick up field to nowhere. But uh, a couple of his other distributions were very good. And just generally, we stuck with it. Ramsdale obviously brought huge personality. Had played a number of big moments uh, in the first half in terms of saves, um, but. Mostly what I liked about him was incredibly brave playing out with personality. Mm. Um, I'm going to say one other thing that upsets people. Lacazette was actually pretty good. (laughs) He was dropping in. He was connecting the play. If you look at all the times we did get up the pitch into promising situations, and it's way more than people remember, Lacazette was involved in much of it. Smith Rowe, pretty quiet, but he had one brilliant pass the one to Aubameyang who was offside unfortunately and quite you look back and you say he was clearly offside but Smith Rowe's little backheeled pass to Aubameyang is fucking genius unfortunately he's about a yard offside and the first half like I'm I don't really want to talk about the second half because there's not much (laughs) like it's what do you do with that we come out and we give the ball away four times put ourselves under immense pressure fuck it up by playing in, into zone 14 the one the place where liverpool lives and they took us apart and then we we start to unfold look the so, first so half- much of arteta's structure since he's been here paul has been about not exposing the middle of the uh, exposing yeah. us to being run through in the middle of the pitch and we handed them the ball in those very positions yeah. which is like everything arteta doesn't want to do Yeah, and like uh, Arteta doesn't always stand up for the team or for the players or whatever, but generally he does. God, he was disgusted, absolutely disgusted with what we did at the start of that second half, as we all were. And and that leads me, Clive, to to sort of ask a a difficult question to answer, but one that I think I, I can't help but think about, which is just when you look at the gap between the teams, we are always so fixated on the coach, the coach, the manager, the manager. What did the manager do? Manager got it wrong. Manager got it right. Lineup was wrong. Tactics were wrong. But the players go out and play the game. And I have never been one to hide behind, you know, when the players are good, it's the manager. When the players are bad, it's the players. I don't like that analysis. But I do think that there is a talent gap here. And I guess what I would ask you is, as you watch this game, is it talent deficit or experience deficit because that Liverpool team is 
exceptional. Mohamed Salah was getting 30-yard passes to the tip of his boot, controlling it on the run. Sadio Mane's run for the free kick in the header is perfect. He was great. He also probably should have been sent off. We're not going to focus a lot of time on what a see you next Tuesday he was and how snide and bitty and, and just you know generally awful he was and, and probably should have been off for it, but he was brilliant. You know, I mean, there, there were things that we handed them, but there was excellent play from X. Fabinho is a player we don't currently have. Um, Tiago, in terms of just being able to regain, retain, and give the ball, you know, absolutely one of the best in the world at it. So how do you parse the talent deficit versus the experience deficit? Because we are a very young team, and the perception is that this young team will grow into what Liverpool has grown into, right? Because they're all in their prime, and they've been together for years. Where, where do you balance that? Does the talent level need to come up, or is it purely experience for you, or somewhere in the middle? Yeah, everything needs to come up, right? So, and we've had an experience, and this will help those players. And for me, I was looking at the reaction to certain instances, and I think you can see in the game as the game went away from us in the second goal, what happened then? The team broke up a little bit because we were we were chasing the game, you know. So both our fullbacks became disconnected from our centre backs. They started to run down our sides. That wasn't the case in the first half. They were, they were trying to make up for the fact we were 2-0 down. So I quite liked that reaction. I quite liked the fact that we at least tried. Okay, it cost us a couple of goals. Could have sat there and just watched them pass it around. But we we tried to come out. We tried to break out. So I, I, I think, you know, just overall, I think, you know, we have, I me and Tim have this debate about experience. I think experience would help. Smith Rowe would have learned a lot from this game about where to stand, how to stay connected when you're not feeling your best. To help your left back out to make sure he can always see you and not pass backwards into the area they actually want you to pass to. Right? So he'll learn a lot from this game. He'll be a much better player for it. I actually really liked how Nuno tried to play. Some of his past selections was wrong, but boy, there's a player there. There is a player there, and this he'll be much better for this. Same with Sambi as well. Um, I think sometimes... Can I, have, can I just interrupt, just to ask you a quick side question, then keep going? Mm-hmm. Yep. Do you think it's going to be such a strong temptation for Arteta now to just bring Tierney right back for the Newcastle game, but given what the, the, the sort of cut, the wound Tavares suffered in this game, is there is there a potential important developmental reason to pick him again at home to Newcastle so he doesn't have to live with this as his sort of memory of his last performance? No, I actually think he, I think your point about him being a really good attacker was really, really valid. And it was the, at the end of his attacks rather than his defense that caused us to problems. You see what I mean? He wasn't exposed defensively. He he was, he was a monster defensively. And there were some recovery runs when he ran back and Salah said, you know what, you can have that. I I don't fancy it. So you have to look at these details. I thought his reaction in game told me a lot. And if I was the coach, he'd be the first person I'd be walking on to go and say, mate, don't worry about it. I would have played them both. I said it pre-game. I would have played them both. I would have played them both. It was a perfect game to have a defensive Tierney behind an absolute tearaway, big space runner to force them to run back. And that was my call. The only call I would have made different. Over Smith Rowe, you mean? Over Smith Rowe, yeah. Yeah. I I said it. I I knew it was coming. He's only a young lad. He, He had a massive week in his life. Massive week. And so I thought Tim made a great point and about disconnection to our front two. The key man in that game, and this was how I know they respected us, was Thiago. And how they put Thiago onto Lacazette and disconnected us getting forward, mm-hmm. which yeah. meant our defenders kept the ball too long, but eventually got dispossessed. We couldn't find our forwards. 
and the rest is transition. Liverpool players are, are shot suppressing midfield, they, so they can put anybody doing the same thing. They push it out wide and create, and go inside to their three fours quite close together, push it out wide to their creative fullbacks, and keep everybody else narrow inside and crush the central zone. So we are forced into wide areas. Hence why I wanted double fullbacks on each side. Saka on the fullback, and um, Nuno and another fullback behind, so we could protect but spring. And that was the key thing. We have your point about third man in midfield. Yes, well, that's one for the future. We could have played Odegaard to find out what he's got, right? But we kept doing what we were doing. By the time we brought him on, there was nothing left to learn. Nothing there, nothing on the table, right? All the food was gone, right? So I think for us, I was really chuffed how we played, really pleased how we played. The set piece goal seemed to come out of nowhere. He said, oh, they've scored. Do you know what I mean? It, it felt a bit like that to me when I watched it again. But no, I just felt we just lacked a bit of presence, composure, assurance under pressure. We just lacked a little bit, you know, and we didn't quite have enough offensive fear factor to move them around enough, you know, yeah. and I, it's just a little bit short. So, but I'm, I'm okay with it because I sort of know that. If you, you know the numbers. Our goals for column ain't great. You know, I sort of know that. We are reliant on a couple of young lads that have been dragging us through these moments. It needs to change, but we know this needs to change. You know, and so it's nothing, it's nothing you guys are listening to thinking, yeah, Clive, that's new. I haven't thought of that before. <laughs> you, you all, we all know it. It just gets crystallized in what I call the top three games. The top three games, everything becomes clear. Everything. And the rest of the league, we're fine. we got enough. But the top three games, you, particularly away, you find out exactly where you are. Right? And you shouldn't be traumatized about it. It is what it is. And we can afford to say, you know what? We're quite young. We are improving. We've done this before with an old team with, with Champions League wages. Then we got a problem. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the problem is that we know whether, whether you look at whatever metric you look at, including the eye test, we are somewhere between a mid-table attack, a lower mid-table attack, and, and, and a very, very lower table attack. And that becomes really problematic when you go down a goal. Because anything we need to do to try to chase a game is only going to weaken the area where we've been strong, which is suppressing high-value shots, high-quality shots. At the ex- you know we're gonna at the expense of what we do well, we're gonna go try to do the thing we don't do well, and that didn't work in this game. I, I, look, there's a, there's a lot more to unpack here. There is a performance that I want to discuss, and everybody's gonna want to turn at it. So all I'm gonna ask is, everybody, let the person who's speaking finish their thought of uh, of of this performance. Um, so Tim. We talk about a talent deficit Can I just say something? Oh, yep. are you joking? <laughs> Already? Is that a joke? Okay. You do jokes? Clive's doing jokes now, everybody. I'm f- totally, completely uh, obsolete. Tim, help me. Um, we talk about a talent deficit versus an experience deficit. I think we believe that someday Bukayo Saka, Emil Smith-Rowe, Martin Odegaard, Nuno Tavares, Ben White, Tomiyasu, Aaron Ramsdale, maybe Sambi Lakonga, like these players can be at the top of the game, we're near it. But there are players that we have right now, like Aubameyang and Lacazette, for example, who are in their prime, who we kind of need to be doing that. Players like Pepe, not doing it, not in the team, not subbed mm. on. But the one area of the pitch that has been a problem for a long time is central midfield. And we bought a player 
to be the one who closes that gap, helps to close that gap. We don't need to do that what's his Arsenal career been thing. But I didn't think it was a great game for Thomas Party, and I think in general he's come under scrutiny for this performance. I'm not just saying that because, you know, I, I float around in those circles. I listen to the Arts cast. I've been on social media. I read some articles. You know, I think in general his performance was under the microscope a bit. Um, I know that at one point Arteta was sort of remonstrating with him when he got bypassed in midfield. I think on the set-piece goal, which, by the way, is flawless delivery from Alexander-Arnold and flawless execution from Sadio Mane, but does he leave Van Dyke, forcing Gabriel to make a hard decision? There's, there's just some questions there, and he may not have been fit to play. It may have been a, a mistake to start him. I'm curious to get your sense of Thomas Party's performance and just generally the sort of need for this player who's supposed to be our Rolls-Royce footballer in midfield to more regularly close the talent gap in that in that part of the pitch. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's that's totally fair. I think it's totally fair that his performance would come under scrutiny. You know, the 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 three experienced players, all of their performances will come under scrutiny. Um there's there's a lot of the same um I'd say sentiment ar- around Abamyang as well. Um and again, that's that's perfectly fair enough. I mean, I, I think with Abamyang it's slightly different just in that we know what we've got and we know that if the ball is not in the eighteen yard area, then Abamyang is is not really much use to be honest he's he that's what he's there to do and if you're not getting the ball in that part of the pitch then he is a passenger we know that <clears throat> uh, with with party obviously he's playing alongside less experienced players you know Lakonga, Saka and Smith Rowe making up that midfield three and he's you know he's we almost looked at our strikers and said okay they got disconnected again we've seen this film a lot of times before we know that happens so we're looking at we're looking at party and in one respect, I think that's fair. And I think it's fair that for a player of his quality, he hasn't shown his quality quite enough. Um, now, there are other factors that play into that. But I do also think that maybe we're still we're still getting a little bit fixated on individuals um, because there's something not quite right there. And what we want is an individual to like come and lift us up um, you know, it's and it's and and I kind of get that because, the, like the very top midfielders do that, I guess. Vieira, you know, did that. Steven Gerrard did that. Kevin De Bruyne does that for Manchester City. You know, the the really really top midfielders do that. But I do think there is a little bit of a hero complex here as well. If one of the big problems was we were getting outnumbered in midfield, right, against one of like um, one of the fiercest midfields, if not by personnel, but as a unit in Europe, and we were getting outnumbered by them. And I do kind of think that there's an element of easier said than done <laughs> sometimes. You know, we're kind of saying to Thomas Party, you should have been able to like take all of that on. I, I just don't think there are many players that can. And really, it's more of a systemic issue. Now, that doesn't, you are still looking for your experienced players and, you know, your 50 million pound types to rise above that at least a bit. But I, I do think we're in easier said than done territory. I think there's, there's something more systemic there. Like Brighton gave Liverpool a really good game at Anfield and got a draw. And it's not because one player took them all on single-handedly it's because they they were compact and they had a plan ditto West Ham West Ham didn't have like Mark Noble running through them <laughs> like Superman and winning them the games like doing Roy Keane in Turin in 1999 um, it was because they had 
they had a plan. And and I do think this happens quite a lot. Um and, and it's one of it's just one of the, I guess, the consequences of being a big ticket player, but it happens a lot to big ticket players. There's a lot of, oh, uh, he disappears in big games. Like that's always something that's that's leveled against some of the bigger players. And it's like, well, yeah, the bigger games, they're quite hard. And and if you're a forward, for example, <laughs> yeah. you don't get that much of the ball. <laughs> so there's not you know, there's there's not that much you can really do. And I, I do feel like there is a bit of that. So I, I guess I'm a little bit on the fence about this in that, yeah. He's he's what twenty eight now. He costs fifty million pounds. I think it's fair that there's scrutiny, and it's fair to expect more. But at the same time, I do think we've kind of got to move away a little bit from this Superman complex and look at look at some of the wider issues, which we've actually already, I think, um, you know, touched on in this pod about the midfield as a whole. Sure, and I mean he's one of the top. I think one of the five highest paid central midfielders in the league. And was an expensive acquisition in the heart of his prime from a big club with big game experience. So I agree with you that the idea that any one player can come in and fix a team is fatuous. While also thinking that you'd like to come out of most games with one of your best and highest paid players in his prime being more 8 out of 10 than 6 out of 10. But to be fair, other teams get to do tactics too. And their tactic is going to be, let's shut that guy down and try to let the 21-year-old inexperienced kid beat us, and we see what happens when that happens. Eventually, that 21-year-old kid folds under the pressure. So I see all of it. I think the the injury issues, Arsenal couldn't have seen it coming, Party couldn't have seen it coming, and it's been a real problem. Because, you know, I remember Aaron Ramsey. We used to say, like, when Aaron Ramsey got a run of five or six or seven games, he was imperious. But when he was just coming back from one of his injury layoffs, he never came back quite as effective. Yeah, And I th- I think, you know, Party is a player who's constantly in and out of the team, and that can't be helpful. Um, so, I, you know, I, I do think that that's been a challenge. And, and yeah, go ahead. And, and I was going to say as well, I also think in central midfield, as much as central defense, it is about partnerships um, as well, unless you're like Liverpool and you've got three robots who do exactly the same thing, <laughs> like, you you do you you do need a, a partner there and he has but not only has he been in and out of the team he's had you know Lukonga and Jacker um as, as different partners so I, I think there is like a little bit of room for for maneuver there um for, him for that looking for an explanation yeah but at the best teams I think you still do look at some like Fabinho is special and he makes Liverpool palpably noticeably better right um you know, I, I think Bruno Fernandes did it at United. Virgil van Dijk was a signing that transformed Liverpool from a fun attacking team to a team that could go on and conquer everything because he solved a lot of problems. Th- there is definitely a tension for me between accepting that football is a group game where the group dynamic matters, partnerships matter, and expecting one player to make you all conquering is nearly impossible with the exception of certain rare players like Lionel Messi. And also understanding that there are some players that need to be 8 out of 10 more often than 6 out of 10. So I, c- I can straddle the fence because the thing is also, his talent is undeniable. I just think from a consistency of performance standpoint, we haven't seen it enough, and injuries certainly haven't helped. Paul, I know you won't want to be shut out of this because you had a different view on his performance. It has come in for criticism. I think it's not just on the ball, but off the ball as well. There's also the, the Jota goal after Tavares gives it away, the second goal... I don't know if he can influence that. It's just a bad look on the replay because he's walking. But I think if he had not been walking, 
It just would have been optically better, but not influenced the game. So I'm loath to sort of criticize that specific moment. But do you want to provide maybe a, a different perspective on his performance? Because I think you definitely saw it differently. Well, I think Tim did a really good job explaining uh, the dynamic when we look at these things. When we lose like this, it hurts bad and we go looking for players and you look at the midfield because they swarmed us, outnumbered us, and you say, well, we didn't get much out of that area there. But i got to ask, what did Thomas Partey do wrong in the first half? And people will say, well, what did he do right? He did a couple of things right. Um, mostly his job, like he's very experienced. He's played for Atletico Madrid. I watched him play a number of times for Atletico Madrid. And then when we were really interested, I went back and looked at his performances. He's beaten Liverpool at Anfield with Madrid. He was in a team that did in the Champions yeah. League. Like in a system. I've seen Leo Messi look uh, average for Argentina. Who else did you mention? Uh, Bruno Fernandes. I've seen him play for Portugal and not be very good. Well, I've seen him go missing for United too. He he does yeah. he does drop the five out of ten regularly. Yeah, yeah, but but that's United. Like United drops the five out of ten. Like it is a team game, and there he is standing in the middle. And if he were smart, or I was his coach, I'd say, don't do anything fucking clever today. Uh, play it to Sambi if he's in a little space. Play it to the wings. Keep it simple. Do not make the do not make yourself the issue today by trying to be fucking Vieira in our midfield. And I think in the first half he kept it simple. He did absolutely nothing wrong. He did a number of uh, good disp- uh, defensive moves against their midfielders as they're going through. Uh, somebody gets past him. Uh, who is it? And he reels him in. Oh, Jota goes charging down the middle. Very fast fellow. And Party gets right back and snaffles that one out in the box. Like, he just, if you watch Atletico Madrid, most of the time they know keep it simple. Play it to, get the ball to the areas you want to play through. And in our case, that was mostly up the wings. We weren't going to play through the middle of, against them. Uh, find Laka if he dropped into a spot of uh, uh, a spot of space. Find Saka. Get it out to Sambi on the left, who's uh, got his head up, looking upfield, and can play the ball out. I mean, I don't know what people think was going to happen in that first half against Liverpool. It's fucking mm. nuts. I don't get it. And, and well, like, he's he, he's not going to be full strength. Like, if he's not jogging back after Jota at the end in the second half, he knows when a guy when he's not going to get to a guy. Um, He's, uh, at that stage, he's running on fumes. I mean, like, come on, guys. I guess what I would just say, Paul, is that, like, you don't have to be killing a guy to say, I didn't think they were, like, when we play well, no one has a problem being, like, Thomas Party dominated or Bukayo Saka was unstoppable or, wow, what a game from Gabriel. So I also think when we don't play well, even against better opposition, there are players you can point to. And the thing is, when you point to a Saka or you point to a Sambi or you point to a Tavares, the out there is always the, this is a learning experience. They're still developing. You know, we think that the the upside to their game will more than overcome this. Whereas with Party, you're saying like, this is the player he is. And I don't think he was a four out of 10 in this game. I, I think... Maybe, but, Clive, maybe but, yeah, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, before please. we go on, can I just say the first half we were good. 
Like, I think we're fine in the first half. I told I I mine doesn't cover it, right? There were they were, were good aspects in the first half. I agree with that. Very good aspects in the first half. We ended up the la, the half after their goal. The last five minutes is really good. Um, and like no argument, yep. Mm-hmm. His job was to not fuck up in the center. Like that was not where we wanted to play the game, and he kept it simple and he got it out to other people. It's like, what the fuck do you want? Not you. No, no, no. I, I, look, I thought we were good in the first half. If I look yeah. at my tweets, if I look at my notes, I came away from the first half feeling like a perfect set piece undoes us. Otherwise, we're in that game, and that's just what I was hoping for. I, I think. And there was it, a period of five or six or seven minutes building up to that. Like uh, I feel a l- slightly different to Clive. I felt that goal was coming at that point. They Ramsdale really, had made some really good saves too, but yeah. they're going to. They have a, an elite attack. What they did in the first half is fair. What they did in the second half, I think, is. Not as good. And Clive, as we continue yeah. this this d- debate, the only thing I'll say, maybe this is the best way I can put it. When you have a player that you really commit big money to because oh, you think they can make a big difference. I so agree with you, Clive. There are certain like- players you add to your squad because you think the delta, you're trying to maximize the delta between what I am with the player in my team versus what I am with the player out of the team. So, for example, if you... You know, if you go and and sign, well, let's say, like Aaron Ramsdale, the delta between what we've been with Ramsdale versus Leno is actually quite big, and that makes that signing feel like a really savvy move. I would say that when when Party first came into our midfield, I felt the delta of what we were when he was in it versus out of it was really noticeable. It's what you want to see. You want to see a much, a very impactful difference. And I just, I think that we haven't quite seen that difference. I mean, we played with what, Maitland-Niles and Lakanga in the game right before this, right, against Watford, I think, and they looked pretty good, and it worked pretty well. I don't know if that delta's been as as big as we think, but but Clive, certainly go ahead, and then, then I want to get on to the arteta klopp tete because I think, I think that's an interesting discussion point as well. Yeah, I, I like it to be a little bit, to look at this a bit differently. I think Paul and Tim have sort of said it really, really, really cleverly. I think from my angle, we have to stop this thing where we think, oh, we spent £45 million on him. So as far as I'm concerned, it, that that should be, that's it. I, it isn't that. And I, and I watched the game today. I watched it cold and I looked at it. I'm thinking, I'm hearing this rumbling of the way it performs. I'm thinking, well, he just stood in the middle. Liverpool basically almost play a diamond almost. And it's important he stands still. It's so important he stands still. If anything, the parts I thought when he was... I was worried because when he pressed on, because mm-hmm. I'm thinking, what's behind you? Who told you to press on? You know, and that was when we were two 0 down, and he decided to press on, and that's when I felt holes appeared. It's when we got out of shape. Where we were so good in the first half was our discipline in shape. When we started chasing people, trying to get the, the wide distribution from Allison out to the fullbacks, and we were jumping out of our holes and trying to smash them and transition, and they won the ball in the air, fit it around the corner, and we ran into space. That's when we looked bad. When we jumped out of our shape, I think my issue with party, and it was before we signed him, and I said this, and people who remember will will remember, my issue with him was his anaerobic fitness. I watched those Liverpool Athletic Home Madrid games, and I watched them closely, and I'm telling you, the last 15 minutes, he was gassed in those games. Gassed. And I was thinking, fitness-wise, he's going to have some ad- adaption to do. Talent-wise, no problem. I didn't expect these injuries. And you're absolutely right. In and out, coming back, 
And he doesn't come back in one game. And we see his name on the team sheet, and we expect 8 out of 10 straight away. He was the only player not to play the Watford game beforehand. So he's been coming after two weeks away, rehabbing, coming into this game, and we got this game from him. If you look at our front six, who was the best one of that front? There was nobody really shining there, was there, in that front six? Yet we zero in on the guy in the middle there who really had a 6 out of 10 game. I thought Smith-Rowe was not very good. I thought Saka was good in bits. Aubameyang disconnected. Lacazette got boshed by Thiago. And Sambi was trying his heart out. Right, so that's it. That's our front six, done. Toast, mm. right? So I don't know why we do this. We we just have to get comfortable with spending these money. Can we need a couple more like this, by the way. We need two or three more 45 mil quid players in our team. And as soon as we do, then we can go to Anfield properly. Do you see what I mean? And so we should be looking at this and saying, okay, it wasn't great today. But Mikel took him off. Right thing to do because Newcastle's massive. Don't play until the end so he breaks down. So we come to Newcastle and losing these three points becomes six points. You know, because that's the most important thing. Take your licks, get people off the pitch, analyse, prepare for the next game. I didn't see that as a major problem. I just saw a player do a six out of ten average game and that's it. End. Fair enough. Yeah, I want to make one point, though, in response to your suggestion that we stop referencing like the, the the price tag of players. I understand what you mean. Once you buy them, they have to go out and play, and some play better than their price tag, some play less well than their price tag. You know, it's still about team and system, and I understand that. The reason I reference it is simply this. In every 11 or 15 or group, there are your tentpole players, your load-bearing columns, however you want to reference it, that are meant to be the players you believe can elevate you to the top of a league, to the top of Europe, whatever it is. But you're not going to have, unless you're Manchester City, 15 of those players. So you have some players that are meant to be that, and then you have some players that are meant to fit in and be role players. You have your, you know, Santi Cazorla's, you have your Francis Cochran's. Francis Cochran, you know, went on to have a sort of modest career after he left Arsenal, you know, nothing super special. Was Alex Song a great player? You know, was he standing next to a great player? Arsenal under Arsene Wenger in those years would not have been good if Cesc Fabregas wasn't sensational, if Robin Van Persie wasn't sensational, right? And I realize I'm referencing players we bought for next to nothing, so let me row back here a little bit. But the point is that, like, when you go out, you know, if you're Liverpool and buy a Virgil van Dijk and an Allison, or, you know, when you go out and you're United and you buy a Bruno Fernandes or any of these clubs, you're doing that with the expectation that that player is going to be a major difference maker and that you can fill in around that. So Aubameyang and Lacazette and Thomas Party and Ben White and Aaron Ramsdale, you know, how you spend sort of indicates where you think you're going to be strongest, and then you fill in around that. So the reason price matters, like Pepe's price, for example, is you have a finite amount of resources, and when you devote a big chunk to a player, you then are saying that player is going to have an outsized influence on our success versus this other role player I bought for five million who I'm taking a punt on, right? Yeah, that's 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 fair. That's pretty you know, that's that's pretty you know, we've got two fifty million pound forwards that, you know, didn't do that great neither, right? No, so, no, no, of course. And, and and that strategy to begin with was flawed. Buying two fifty yeah. million pound center forwards in consecutive windows was not sensible. But they didn't do that great in my opinion, because where they are in their careers and against the very best teams, they struggle. That's the truth. 
right, against Chelsea and Liverpool and City, they struggled to impact those games. That, that is the truth. Now, I think, you know, if you take Liverpool as a good example, like Fabinho's there standing there, but you know what? He's got Thiago next to him, 30-year-old top player, Bayern Munich, multiple league winners. And it's, it's just easier for him with that guy there. His role is defined. Right, so, and then when they bring off Oxley Chamberlain, most Arsenal fans don't like. And I thought had a decent game. They're bringing on Jordan Henderson, England captain, thirty years of age. There you go, drop into the right eight role, will you? Keep it ticking over. Right, it's just it's just depth, quality, experience, age, more of it. Right, it's just and it is what it is. All over the place, Van Dijk behind him, Allison, yeah. TAA. He's just got, you know, uh, Jock and Jock dropping in, Mane dropping in. Like, it's just, you put bloody um, Fabinho in our midfield against Liverpool, see what happens to him. The idea that because a player is a £45 million player, that he should try and put on a £45 million eye-catching performance in a game where his job is to to be the anchor like he's a dm he's not a striker he's not a winger he's not supposed to be setting off fireworks just to prove he's worth 45 million pounds i think, I, I think we should hang on this is going to go around and around and around because i i mean i can well i'll stop what i'm done long. saying sometimes the job of for 45 million pound dm is to keep things simple should i say yeah, one last I, just one last thing yeah, not, not right, on this. Yeah. i think the biggest the thing that's been a worry for Arsenal for maybe nearly a year now has been, it maybe it's the same thing but a different way of phrasing it, has been our reliance on our younger players. That, that is the bigger issue for me. And I worry about them. I continually worry about them. When I see them flag like I did in this game, particularly outside of our midfield, I worry about that because they have been the extra piece that lift some of the older players. And that's been a consistent theme now since Boxing Day last year. Yeah, I and, and that's what we have to manage. But we shouldn't turn that back. You know, I think Thomas Party's issue for me is injury and consistent availability. That's the issue for me. When he's available and fit, I do not see a problem. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and, and look, ultimately, I can point to players that have outsized influence on their team but then the counter argument is going to be, we'll look at the rest of their team and you go around and around and around because it's a chicken and the egg, which is, which is the truth? Is it the truth that an individual player elevates a team or a team elevates an individual player? And both are true, right? The best teams have good systems, players in their primes who are very, very talented. Your most talented players in their prime should more consistently deliver your best performances, but you know, it, it isn't always possible depending on the opposition. So again, you can go around and around on it. Um, I do think it is the case that we have nailed our colors to the mast. We are a young team, and we're going to roll with youth. And that means there are going to be harsh lessons along the way and inconsistencies. And I, I don't think it's fair to say that these senior players are always going to be able to just make up the gap. So uh, we'll take a break to tell you about a podcast. I'm really, really sorry you're not going to get to hear about Manscaped until Friday. So I hope you can be okay with that. Uh, the Thanksgiving holiday, by the way, in the United States comes this Thursday. So if you're celebrating that, I hope you have a wonderful holiday with your family. We will put the podcast out on Friday as a result of that. Black Friday, we're going to put the podcast out for half of its usual price. The free podcast will be 50% off on Friday as our Black Friday celebration. There you go. So we'll take a quick break, tell you about this. Then we're going to talk Arteta and Klopp head-to-head the Battle Royal, and more. Stay with us. 
Okay, we're back. Tim, look, we can talk player performances till we're blue in the face. What's clearly true is that we lost this game because Mikel Arteta got mad at Jurgen Klopp. <laughs> that we focus so much on tactics and so much on talent, but really football is just about whether managers get mad at each other. I mean, look, I have seen managers come nearly to blows. I've seen Arsene Wenger body Jose Mourinho. Um, you know, I have, I have seen a lot of this stuff happen, and I understand the theater of it, and I do think it lifted the crowd a bit. But, like, there was a halftime after it, and it was after halftime where things really went bad. We're undone by a set piece. I struggle. I, I can craft an argument for why this did matter, and mm. maybe I'll do it as the straw man in a minute. But I'm curious if you think it mattered, and not just to the result, but how it transmits to the players as well, either as defending them or a loss of composure. What's your overall take on the the importance of this and the what it transmits to the team? Yeah, sure. I can only tell you what I felt at the time, which was um, it was <clears throat> in the moment. I was like happy to see it. I thought, yep, mm-hmm. okay. Um, I do think Klopp is an asshole on the touchline, and I think he kind of um, he gets uh, he gets a very generous press for it. Like if you look at some of his celebrations, sometimes he runs off in the direction of the uh, of the away dugout, and like he does it in such a way that he knows what he's doing. He does it in such a way he doesn't like get in people's faces, but he runs past them, you know, to have his celebration and stuff like that. Like he he knows what he's doing, um, you know. And I, I'm not like saying that makes him an awful human being. I'm just saying he knows what he's doing when he does some of that on the touchline, um, and I don't have a huge problem with it. Um, you know, they're both just like defending their teams, but it, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? It's one of those result based. Uh, post hoc analyses where for for some reason it's Arteta that lost his call but Klopp didn't like they both lost their call of course they did like they both looked a bit stupid to be honest but but it's all all right it's all in the kind of heat of the game I like I don't I really don't remember thinking this had any impact until like people were discussing it on Twitter at half time and I looked and I was like really I just didn't really make that connection. I, I think there are two sides to this. I mean, first of all, I think basically overall, the, the human brain likes to connect dots, and that means we're attracted to narratives and we're attracted to cause and correlation and, and all of that. That doesn't mean that things like this never Look, ever I'm just matter, saying jet though. fuel can't melt steel beams, Tim. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but but that, that doesn't mean stuff like this never matters. Um, like soft factors do matter. Like we've we've talked a lot about Ramsdale in recent weeks and and things like that and i think some of that you know is does have some like marginal edge i i think that essentially liverpool had already turned the tide of this game before that happened i think you're right i don't think you score a set piece because the crowd's um a little bit antsy and you're also quite right the liverpool's best period came about 30 minutes after that happened so i i think it's one of those things it's good theater it makes good television um and it's like it's it's an attractive explanation because it's quite a simple one, but I don't want to be an enormously patronising with that because, like I said, I, I do think those. I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that it mattered. I happen to think it didn't. Um, it, if it mattered, it might have mattered a little bit, but I, I really, honestly, I don't think it did. Um, and and ultimately, in terms of you know Arteta's reaction, what it says to the players, I hope it says something good, something positive. M- maybe he'll he'll come away with a different view and think maybe I shouldn't have done that. But if I were one of his players, I mean, ultimately Klopp started yelling in his face like 
what was the alternative really um i mean i guess you could say he could have walked away like you know walked away looking like the coolest cat in town and going keep shouting if you want i'm in control and you're not that that would have been quite a brave move though um you know a bit like what what is it people tell you like if you're attacked by a bear to like go running towards it screaming or something <laughs> like easier said than done do you know what i mean i'm it not sounds sure like it's to my strength to be fair <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of it's one of those things um you know probably a bit easier said than done i i, I just think it's one of those things you know makes a nice bit of tv i'm sure like the players won't ruminate on it too much i'm sure at the time they probably thought yeah okay i'm i'm happy enough um to see that that looks that looks fine but then again it it obviously didn't transmit into their performance to be fair um so if there is any residual value and again if there is i'm sure it's very very tiny anyway it obviously didn't manifest in the moment but honestly i think it's one of those things that really just belonged in the moment and nowhere else really yeah, uh, Paul, I want to bring you in on this because I know you have a very specific view of it as well. I guess, so look, Tim, I'm inclined to view it the way you do. If I wanted to sort of reposition myself and view it from a different perspective, I might say you've got a young team trying to maintain its composure in a really difficult place where you can't let your emotions get the better of you and you need your young manager to transmit some of that calmness, some of that focus, and that this emotion fires up the players, gets their emotion ratcheted up, gets the crowd emotion ratcheted up, elevates the temperature of the occasion and makes it just that bit harder for the young players to stay really disciplined and intellectually focused because the emotion starts to overwhelm you a bit. I also do wonder if that sort of in-the-moment hatred for Klopp and desire to get the better of him meant that Arteta went into that halftime speech maybe a little more wound up, maybe asking his team to push on more to, to try to get something more from the game and explains a lack of composure coming out. Now, again, I'm playing devil's advocate a bit because that's not really how I view it. But I think there's an argument for it, Paul, if you're inclined to see it that way. And I think you sort of maybe do. Um, I'm open to the possibility it wasn't a great idea. Um, they were just beginning to kind of build that wave and then this happened and I would say uh, I don't think it was 20 minutes later uh, I think uh, on about this happened around 30 31 minutes and they scored their goal on 38 um, and they were basically wave after wave of attack after that but they kind of were just before that so and, and given how they play and how we were playing I think this was the kind of energy that helped them and maybe mightn't have been great for us because we were, you know, trying to keep a balance or whatever. I do think at halftime, not so much that it would have had Arteta saying, get out there and kick him in the nuts. But I do think it may not, finding the right words at halftime is a lot easier when you've got your composure. So I don't, like, I just don't think it was a great idea, but I was there for it. And I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I, you know, I, I liked what I was seeing. I liked that far. I think in the long run, uh, there's something. There was something strong about it. It was the appropriate response. I think. I think he may learn from it and say, it was, uh, it was right, but it was not skillful. 
It was not the right thing in the moment for where we were at. We we were the younger team. We were the team that needed to keep our composure, our awareness, not get carried away with emotion. We needed to stay level, and maybe it didn't really help. But that's that's kind of on. Unba- it could have had no impact. It could have. Uh, it felt to me. It felt like they were building towards a goal in any case. Um. And so, you know, you can you can see it either way. Um, definitely a bit of a narrative thing, but I think, like, you just want the cold blood. I, I yeah. think if you, I think if you do what he he did, you do it because you want to do it. If you know what I mean. That, in the same way, Klopp uh, uses this shit um, to get his team fired up. You do it because it's. Uh, skillful. It's tactically the right thing to do at that moment, and I think we did it because we we were incensed and indignant and and outraged. I still thought it was fucking great, and I like to see that the solidity and backing your guys and the team stepping in, and then Mane was like Mane's a prick. Uh, Klopp's teeth may be beautifully manicured, but as soon as he goes a bit crazy, the two, the bo- up, the top and the bottom set go in opposite fucking dire- directions, and he looks deranged. Look, we watch football because it gets the pulse going. This got my pulse going. Uh, I'm totally fine with it. If it added a couple of goals to their side, I don't give a fuck. I also don't give a fuck that people get, uh, like, I get it for the traveling fans. I understand why they would be good at going there and getting beaten 4-0. But for the rest of us, fucking, you know, we we move on. You walk it off, you go on to the next game, you learn your lessons, and you come back strong. And, like, I, look, th- this is one of those. Of it, you walk it off. right. Of course. In the wake of it, that's right. Of course. The, the analytical part of your brain understands they're a much better team. We took a heavy beating, and it can happen. We lost 6-0 to Chelsea and 5-1 to Liverpool in a season where I think we finished fourth anyway, or third, or whatever, fourth probably. Like, it can happen. I don't think it's fair to tell people not to feel the pain and embarrassment of that loss in a sport that is inherently emotional, in a thing we do inherently to be lifted, right? Like one of the things we love about football is when it's great, it lifts us emotionally. It's not because the spreadsheet looks good. So I I get you. You're right. Analytically, you're right. I just, I fully, fully understand why a sport that can lift you to these incredible heights when it goes well can drag you to these incredible lows when it doesn't. You know, and I think it's hard to... I fully understand that too. Yeah, but, okay, fair enough. but yeah. the next game's the next game. Three sure. points is three points. These guys got beaten by West Ham, who then got beaten by Wolves 1-0. And I watched that game, and Wolves were much better than West Ham. So, like, it's just every weekend there's going to be a fucking result. And you know what's like, also different for us, Paul? Let's face it, like geography. I mean, the one thing you get that over there that you don't get over here is – you, well, nobody's walking into work too much these days with remote work, thankfully. But you don't want to walk into work and get roasted by your scouser I fully uh, get colleagues I fully get for, for the beating. You know, there, there's there's bragging rights. There's a reason you don't want to lose to Spurs and have to go into work on a Monday. You know, so yeah, anyway, I fully get that. Look, yeah. I get all the emotional side of it, but that like the fact that one guy goes into work and one guy doesn't doesn't change the meaning of the game. That I agree with. I'm just talking about how you pres- why you might be look if we beat. Newcastle 4-0, no one's going to be thinking back to this Liverpool game at full time of that one. 
But for right now, that's the wound that's that's fresh in the memory. Sure. So, you know, I get it. Um, Clive, do you want to talk about the the, the clopper tenet thing quickly and then get on to maybe more substantial discussion? Oh, please. Yeah, yeah, I thought if you – are we doing a rewatch this week, mate? I hope so because I've got some I, stuff. I mean, I would love to rewatch the first half. I don't think I've got the second half in me. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. First half is cool. But you'll see from minute one, literally 10 seconds into the game, when Mane flies into Ben White while he's vulnerable in the air. And I'm thinking – from that moment on, it was on. It was on. And you have to protect your players. Mate, I'm fully behind the manager. Let them have it. Let them realise that we are not the, the, the old club. Where the result looks the same, you have to establish yourself. It's going to be a long process. We have to put a stake in the ground, establish ourselves. So that's not allowed. That's not happening. I'm going to make a scene. Look after my players. Look after the referee. Look after them fourth official. You know, that's what that's what needs to happen. And he done the right thing. I'm not going to live and die by Jamie Carragher narratives about whether that wound the crowd up or not. I'm not. I'm not analysing football that way. Right? I'm analysing football in a way where I care about what happens in our club, in our dressing room, and how our players feel about our major. And I promise you, those players will be buzzing at the majors, protecting them in that way. So that's where I leave it. That's where I leave it. Just as a last question on that, since you've sort of done the coaching thing, do you think it could have influenced Arteta's? halftime team talk and the way uh, he wanted us to come out in the second, like maybe just a little too much fire and brimstone for the occasion. That's a lot of um, one plus ones there, mate. But yep, I, what I, I will I mean, say, I what I will say is, you know, if you want to have a proper discussion about the manager on this day, I couldn't, I could see his game model for minute one. I couldn't see his game model for minute 46. Yeah. Does that, does that make sense? I couldn't see what we were going to do next. And I'm not sure we had the tools to do it anyway on the day. So if we had a discussion about what we can do, what our reaction is going to be, I could not see our game model in the second half. You know, and that it became more individualistic to me and not all, not all our individuals were hot. So that's my, that's my yeah. feedback. Let, we'll get a little bit macro uh, before we end the podcast, but I still think there's a few more micro issues that we should definitely get to. Um, and then maybe, maybe we'll have time for two minutes to discuss Ole being sacked, although we've got a podcast at the second half of the week where I think we can talk about that more and maybe talk about it in the context of what it means for our game with them that's on the horizon. But Tim, the second half obviously went very poorly, and it went very poorly in large part due to self-inflicted wounds. But against Liverpool, they're not self-inflicted in the sense that Liverpool yeah. inflict them on you, so to speak. Yeah. I do think that our really good first half to the extent that it was really good, that's overstating it, but you get my point, is also, to some extent, a byproduct of a slightly less intense press. And I think Liverpool came out after the halftime break and turned it on. And mm. the player who very, very clearly could not live with it was Sambi Lakanga. Now, I know the Tavares giveaway gives them the second goal, and it comes from him... I think it simply carries it out of trouble. He's not scanning. He gives it back into an area where you just can't pass without looking... It can happen. But it all starts with Lakanga just giving it away time and time and time again. Yeah. So do you think that maybe there is some truth to the fact that Liverpool saved that boa constrictor press for the second half and two young players in particular, but especially Samby just couldn't live with it? Or do you have a different idea of why uh, Samby in particular, who I thought was very good in the first half, sort of folded in a five-minute period there? 
Yeah, it could be. It could be. It could be, it could have been their plan from the beginning. Um, it could have been, you know, there's lots of talk about Arsenal having to survive the first 15 minutes. And actually the first um, 15 minutes, I was, I was in a cab, so I was listening to the commentary on Arsenal.com before I could watch the rest on a screen. And um, I think it was, um, I think it might have been Josh James who was in um, in COCOMs and, you know, it got to 15 minutes and, it's, and you know, it was 15 minutes. This This would have been one of the first big targets not really much going on for Liverpool here. And, and you know, it could maybe this, is, I mean, look, we'll never know. <laughs> it could be a bit meta, but maybe they thought, well, okay, you know, Arsenal are well-versed in the kind of the first 15 minutes at Anfield. So, you know, let's maybe make it the first 15 minutes of the second half. Let's, um, let's let them think they're clever for half an hour and then go for it. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how likely that is. Um, it's certainly I think the thing is with Liverpool's press as well is it's not just about kind of sprinting to the ball they set traps um is what they do and uh there was there was a really good analysis of it on uh, match of the day actually in the UK it was really weird the match of the day um which which was largely done by Alan Shearer and not Ian Wright but um it was really weird because they went big on the clock Arteta and this turned the game and everything and then they did like a really good tactical analysis of Liverpool's so pressing <laughs> yeah in, but Liverpool's <laughs> pressing in the second half and the way they like they box you in um and and I think like we played into their hands a little bit because the way Arsenal press as well as they bring Saka and Smithrow inside and and they just boxed us boxed us out basically and there are a couple of players they let have the ball um, and, and I think Lukonga was one of them. And it wasn't so much that he was being pressed. It was that everyone else was occupied and he didn't really have a good option um, for the ball. And, and really, the only other thing he could have done in the circumstances was just kick long or go for the channels or something like that. And, and you know, that, that wouldn't have been ideal. It, it probably would have been better than what he ended up doing. And what's what's kind of, um, I guess, the, the tried, <clears throat> excuse me, the tragedy of this is really that Lukonga was about to come off anyway, like Maitland-Niles was on the touchline. One sec. Uh-oh. Tim muted himself. Oh, there he is. Sorry. And he's back. Yeah, no problem. Sorry, something in my throat. <clears> throat> uh, I see. Would, would you like me to, to just waffle for a second? Uh, yeah, sure. I think Clive wanted to come in. Yes, yeah, yeah Clive, why don't you come in and, and we'll let Tim uh, repair his larynx and then finish his thing. Uh, such a professional Tim is. Right, so unlike me, he'll just cough through. Right, so I, would say, I think you often find players hold the ball when the pitch is not there for them. And I think what happened was, as always, you've heard me talk about <laughs> linkers and stretchers. We didn't have enough stretchers. I knew it. I knew it was coming. This is what I wanted Nuno to play. You need to force them back. And as soon as they knew we were setting the play, setting the play backwards, they could jump on us to square passes and backward passes. That's where it went wrong because our energy to stretch the game, it fades away during the game. And that was the trick for me. I don't think they did anything apart from tactically, very smartly played Thiago left half to smash the Lacazette Saka, a Bamiyan connection. Our left-hand side was not great. And um, and so that's what happened. We didn't have enough stretchers to change the game slightly. We, d- we needed Mikel Antonio, shall we say, to run them backwards, to get set pieces, to put them under stress, make them play in areas that they don't want to play. In the second half, what is really apparent is 
they played in all the areas they want to play. In the first half, we had a little bit more composure and pushed them back a little bit more. That was the main difference. We didn't have the ability to stretch them backwards. Yeah, I I think the good news for Sambi Lakonga, maybe unlike Tavares, is since Shaq is not expected back anytime soon, and eventually party will go off to the AFCON, Sambi's going to play a lot, and he's going to be able to get this out of his head. He's a young player. He'll get past it. And we know he's got a big personality because he was captain of his team before he came here. So I, I think it'll be okay. The Tavares one is a little different because he may now lose his place and sort of have to fight back from this. Before I go to you, Paul, Tim, do you want to finish your thought now or is your throat permanently banjaxed? Uh, no, I was pretty much done anyway, to be honest. Yeah. I, I thought so as well. Um, Paul, thoughts on that? I mean, I, the Tavares thing is tough for me because the the suggestion that it should have been Tierney over Tavares is one I can understand, but it wasn't Tavares defensively, as I said earlier, that that undid us. It's a mistake carrying the ball out. I've also seen Tierney not play well at Liverpool, by the way. I, you know, I, I like Tierney, and I think we've underrated him in the wake of Tavares playing well. But do you think that there's a potential danger of losing Tavares if he makes this big error, we go down 2-1, get hammered at Anfield, he loses his place to Tierney, and we don't see him for a bit? What's, what's your thought on that? Uh, I hope not. Um, the one thing I'll say about Nuno, uh, I said this on the reaction pod, is he's done that pass multiple times. He just hasn't always been punished for it. Um, he's he, he's very brave on his passing, but he can be uh, a little careless. Um, and so, you know, I sense the manager was pretty fucking steamed about... He talked about us giving the ball away in general, so it wasn't just that one moment. Um, I agree with your analysis that like Sambi's going to play, and like his first half warrants getting played. Um, I think Nuno did particularly well defensively, and we think that, uh, like we all like Tierney, and we might question whether he's challenged with his form or. He just happened to have been fit and playing when we were not at our best, and and that's really the issue with his form. So we don't know where where his form's really at. I I suspect he doesn't have a huge form issue. He has a huge. He was the only way we used to attack at the start of this season, and he was targeted, and he didn't look very good. Um, and so manager's got an interesting call there coming up here. But I don't think Nuno should be dropped because of a bad pass. I think defensively he was very strong in a way that almost none of our other fullback options are strong. Only Tomiyasu can match the physicality of him defensively. Um, he may not have the smarts of Tierney about positioning and and all the 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 experience that comes with that because he hasn't played nearly as much as basically anybody else in our team he didn't you know he wasn't a starter in portugal um he'd play he'd have seven or eight starts i think in the last two seasons or something like that um so he doesn't have all that knowledge of where to be at what moment in the game but his recovery powers and his physicality to br- to push somebody brush somebody off the ball is basically it's right up there with gabriel um, he brings a lot more to offer than I expected he was going to. I hope this isn't the reason he doesn't play, but Tierney's got to be pretty close to coming back anyway. I still think he's kind of our number one, but Nuno's done so much, even in this game. Like the first half, 
Um, I think there's no reason he shouldn't have been playing for us based on that first half. He's he's so strong on that side with Gabriel. They've they're yeah. maybe developing an understanding. So, but on the other hand, is it the worst thing if a player sits it, sits it out for a game or two? The problem is, is not if he sits out a game. The problem is if Tierney gets back in and and does okay, you're not going to drop Tierney, and well, he mightn't see a game yeah. for a while. That's it. He. Arteta had a clean pivot to Tierney in this game, right? Thanks, Nuno. You've been great. Our our senior player is back, and it's a big game, so we're going to go with him. We're not punishing you. You know, you've done great. Now, if you drop him, it, it feels almost like a punishment. You know what I mean? Almost like, yeah. like you let us down, and now you're out of the team, and you could be out of the team a while. So it's just it's a subtle thing with psychology, with these kind of moves, and you, you wonder how young players will react to it. Tavares, I believe at his former club, had a bit of a reputation for his attitude. So, you know, I'd just be curious to see what happens there. The, the interesting thing with picking Tavares here is I didn't have a big problem with picking him, but the more I think about it, Tavares' strength, his power in the duels, his tackling, his recovery runs, if you said his weakness, he does everything at 1,000 miles an hour and he's maybe a bit loose with the ball. And the one thing you can't be against Liverpool is a bit loose with the ball. And yeah. that leads me to something, Tim, that I think is a problem at Arsenal, and I cannot explain why, because technically I don't think there should be a reason for it. I don't think we're great at passing the football to each other. On time, at tempo, accurately. And not just passing, but pass consideration. We saw passes that rolled to a stop at a player, or where we could have been in, but the player had, you know, Saka had to come back to get it. Or Aubameyang played in Smith Row, but it was too heavy and rolled out in a touch, or... You know, Lacazette did have the one nice one, no bombing that I thought could have been a goal, but one where he, com- you know, completely overhit it. Like, and it's not just that, it's the playing through the thirds. You know, positional football is about, you know, we heard Pep talk about it, right? The ball moves. The player doesn't move, the ball moves. And I don't see any players that shouldn't be able to do it, but yet it doesn't happen. And, you know, mm-hmm. we saw it against Brighton. And in the Brighton game, we said, well, it's co- it was wet, it was windy, tough conditions. But they were able to pin us back largely because we just couldn't pass the ball to each other. I think there's been a long-term problem, and I'm curious if you, A, agree that it is a problem, and B, have any explanation for it, because I don't see players out there where I say, you know, with all with all due respect, Paul, I don't see Francis Cochlins out there, you know, who are there to do a certain role, but maybe technically aren't the level. These are very technically adept players. Yeah, yeah. I guess you'd say we haven't got, like, a really, really top draw technical player like a Cazorla or an Ozil, um, you know, the the kind of player who they get the ball and you just go, oh yeah, they're, they're not going to give it away. Um, I, I don't so think Odegaard we probably... Odegaard is probably, hopefully, the, the closest. closest. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. And obviously he wasn't playing. I, I completely agree with you, Elliot. I do think it's been a long-term problem. Um, and that's why Xhaka pretty much always starts, right? It's... Um, it's not because of, I don't think, leadership experience, things like that. It, it's because he's pretty solid with the ball. He's good at passing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's just yeah, good at exactly. Passing. And and not just like completing passes, but, you know, fizzing them, getting them forward at the right pace. Like he doesn't roll it gently. Do you know what I mean? You're not standing there looking at your watch. I'd still say like a lot of these player. players, though, it's two touches to get it at. I mean, one of the things I loved yeah. when Party first came was, 
one touch and the ball's away or no touches and the ball's away. You know, we just yeah, don't have yeah, players yeah. that do that that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we've gotten better at having players who can spin away from pressure. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And that's that's a really good thing to have. But I, I think you're right. I think there isn't quite that real technical expertise. Um, Smith, Rowe and Saka are still developing it. Um, largely, I think, because they travel with the ball so quickly. And that you know that that's just something to clean up in both their their respective techniques. They travel with the ball so quickly that you know it's difficult sometimes to to steady yourself for the pass. And, and I'm pretty certain with both of them that will come. Um, but but no, I think you're right. I think in the, it, it comes back to what's in the spine of that team, right? Because we kind of stopped playing with a number ten. Um, for for a while now, uh, since Erzil came out of the team and Erdegaard's been out of the team, we we haven't properly got that creative fulcrum, that glue in there, um, and and I think it's showing. And and look, all all the kind of stats about chance creation say it right. We we're, we're basically we're not good enough at getting the ball into the final third. And when you look at, I mean, if you, I guess if you really wanted to worry, like a lot of our goals have been set pieces in recent weeks. And so we're not habitually breaking teams down with our passing. You're not seeing much kind of one touch passing. That could just be about this being like quite a new team. And maybe that takes a little bit of time to build, but I think you're right. I do think that there is a technical uh, there's a technical issue in there somewhere, and I'm not I'm not really sure how we solve it, other than Erdgaard really realizing his potential. I, th- I think that that would be that would go some way to solving it. Yeah, Clive, I know you're about out of time, and we're going to switch to macro focus after this. But I wanted to get your thoughts on that too. I mean, it must drive Arteta crazy. Here's a guy who, in Arsenal's second act, Arteta was one of the best players he had. You know, along with Cazorla, I guess you'd say in terms of just keeping possession through metronomic, well-paced, accurate, short-distance passing. Find a teammate. Get the ball, find a teammate. Get the ball, find a teammate. Half turn, find a teammate. Tempo, tempo, tempo. Like, that was him. And it's weird how little we do that. And, I, you know, against Liverpool, it is very difficult, I, I concede. But it's a thing that I think, in general, we struggle to do. We have seen periods where we don't string more than three passes together against Palace, against Brighton, against Liverpool, I mean, against Leicester. So do you have an explanation of, of why that might be? Is it distances? Um, you know, is, is it players that would rather carry than pass? There's, there's got to be something here because we aren't a great passing team, you know? <laughs> no, we're, we're not a passing team. I, I, don't, I think we're a transition team at our best. Yeah. And we're a build-up team. So we build up from the back, right? So I think I have these simple theories about the game. You have your interior and your exterior. And I think our exterior at the back end of our pitch has been remodeled and it looks fantastic. But you are defined by your interior. So what type of team do you want to be? So you speak about Liverpool and their midfield three. Their midfield three define who they are. They are shot-suppressing midfield. Their job is to crush and to move it quickly to their three superstar forwards who are all top. Right? Plus so, Alexander-Arnold, if you want to throw him in there. Yeah, and, you, and they create from wide areas, right? So they, their model is, is clear, it's free. So when you talk about Arsenal's midfield, we're, we got a 28-year-old that not everyone likes. <laughs> we, have, we have three kids in there, two 21-year-olds and a 20-year-old holding the sides and trying to drop in as double tens. And we have a couple of 30-year-olds up, up front. So we know that in Lacazette, 
he's doing a job which is a leadership role, a spiritual role, to try to get some traction in the game. And Aubameyang's the tip of the arrow, right? So, so we're still defining our interior. We're still defining who we are. And it's not consistent. And fair enough, we won, haven't been beer for 10 games. Like we haven't mentioned Shaka much. And as soon as we lose one, we start to mention him. And that's what happens, right? You go back to your pillars, go back to your structures. I think this game was really important for the learning of these players, for Sambi, for Nuno, for all of them. I think it's really important. So I think Tim just said something that's really, really key there, actually. Because we are a traveling team, we travel, we drive, we sometimes pass at the absolute limit of our speed. And it's very difficult to time the movement because when it goes well, we're all, we're all really happy. I, I just feel I wouldn't worry too much about this one. And some of the judgments that you see, think of it more from what have we learned, what have the players learned, how they're going to react, how did they react in game, how did the manager react in game, when did we become disconnected and why, did we have the ability to hit their back line and why not? It's more one of those type of games to me. And because if we do the same things against teams that are not so good, I'm sure we'll look better. For To be a passing team, you have to create space. How do you create space? You need some really technical people in the interior that can develop their own space. Or you need some powerful people at the exterior up front that can drive people back to create space. I'm afraid we didn't have the latter on this day. And that was the problem. So we, we, our space was contracted in the central areas until we were strangled late in the game and the scoreline was what it was. Yeah, well said. Um, I want to give Paul a shot at this and we also need to get to the macro stuff just of where we are now and taking stock before we say goodbye. So we'll, we won't go too much longer, but we do have to let Clive go here. Uh, Clive's on Twitter, Clive PFC. Thanks, bud. Thank you very much. Okay, before I let uh, Paul jump in here, I want to tell you about The Rumor. It's a podcast on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. In 1995, Cal Ripken Jr. broke Lou Gehrig's 2130-2130 game consecutive played record. The season after Major League Baseball went through a player strike and canceled a World Series, thus saving baseball, captivating a city and nation, and even the planet, and other planets and the universe. The world was obsessed with Cal's hard work and goodness. He was even the face of milk for years. Um, you know, we, we'd all love to be the face of milk, but he was the face of milk. I have a face like milk. But if you've ever lived in Baltimore, you've heard the rumor. A long-standing, salacious rumor involving Cal, Hollywood legend Kevin Costner, and a mysterious power outage at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Mac Montadon and Sam Dingman never truly believed the rumor until he met a friendly cop at a party who whispered, well, it's all true. What's behind the rumor? That Cal and the Orioles went to extreme measures to orchestrate a fake power outage at Oriole Park at Camden Yards in order to preserve the streak, among other uh, more salacious rumors. On the new Blue Wire podcast, The Rumor, friends, lifelong Oriole fans, and seekers of truth, Mac Montadon, Sam Dingman, attempt to unravel this wild 24-year-old story before it unravels them. Because if the investigation reveals that it's truly true, The Rumor would change the way we think about baseball, certainly, reality, oh my, and the very nature of how myths are made and destroyed. So, no biggie. Listen to The Rumor on Apple Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Paul, you want to have a quick go on the passing issue? Yeah, so I agree with you. I'm, I'm kind of surprised at times that we're not a better passing team. We're not even, we're not super possession-y either uh, across this season, which you would have, you would have just assumed we'd be over the 50% mark, <clears throat> and we're not really. Um. But on the other hand, like what's possession for and what's passing for, I think we're starting to be more aggressive from the back and we've got a lot of good passers. 
when you start going through it. Like Gabrielle has really jumped up two levels. It, like he might be our best backline passer, uh, along with Ramsdale. White's obviously a very good passer. Um, the full backs are, regardless of who plays, are somewhere between good and very good. And then like Sambi's just a great little passer. And as he becomes more confident and more bedded in, I think he'll really have a force. Um, not to bring up the party topic, he was 94% in this this game. Uh, like He's mostly a very good passer, especially when fit and running and up and running. Odegaard is obviously quality and technical on the ball, maybe not at Fabregas levels, but he's you know he's right up there as a player. And then Smith Rowe, like if you ever look at a a, a radar for Smith Rowe, he's like a hundred percent in terms of clean uh, for for his position. He's such a super clean passer. Saka is obviously a very clean passer, and we've got enough passers in the team. But I I don't disagree with your diagnosis. I'm sometimes pro- uh, surprised we're not better at it and I just think it's there's been a lot of change we're learning our system we're now coming into the development of the system where we're spending more time in the middle in the final third putting things together so I hope uh, it starts to click because we do have enough passers in the team I think yeah maybe the issue I mean maybe the the, the passing is an issue but you look at this game and Tim like Mohamed Salah was exceptional. He might be the best player in the world right now, and he looked like it. Mm-hmm. Trent Alexander-Arnold, every single delivery is perfect. I don't know how you're supposed to live with that. But him and you know Salah, Mane, and, and Diogo Jota, like, they're always going to score. They're just always going to score. And I do wonder. I think Bukayo Saka is excellent and will be excellent. I think Smith Rowe is excellent will be excellent. I don't know of another club that wants to be a, quote, big club and regularly be in the Champions League with fewer reliable and proven goal scorers in their team than we Mm. have. Mm -hmm. And I think we are really trying to thread a needle here. You can have young players in midfield. You'll get punished for it a bit, but you can survive it. You can have young players in defense. You get punished for it a bit, and you survive it. But the hardest thing to do in football and the last thing to come is end product. And we we have a 32-year-old striker who has some left. You know, a 30-year-old striker who's playing basically as a midfielder, so he's not going to score from there. And a bunch of young guys who don't have a proven history of end product. Are we asking or expecting an attack to work that doesn't have proven goal scorers in it? Uh, yeah, quite possibly. And, you know, we've we've been relying on Smith-Rowe and Saka kind of upping the ante. And Smith-Rowe's responded um, in that respect. I, I still think that overall, though, we we just don't get the ball in good positions enough. I still think, it, I, like we we definitely have a goal scoring problem, but it's a creation problem. Um, we have the few. Anything. We're nineteenth in the league in big chances created. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, in in Abamyang, we've got one of the best strikers in the world, like one of the best penalty box strikers in the world. We we just have but we just don't get the ball in the penalty area very often. I I see that as more of the issue, but but it, it's still... And look, they overlap and they go hand in hand. Um, we, we definitely do have that issue. And and a lot of it is like that's the next phase, that's the next evolution of this team, that Arteta didn't buy any of these attackers. Um, he gave Aubameyang a new contract, so 
you know, he didn't buy him, but he, he expressed some faith in him. He bought Willian, so I'm not saying his hands are completely clean here, but he didn't buy a Bamiyang, Lacazette or Pepe. And I really think that at the moment we're in a bit of a holding pattern where we're just trying to wait them out. And we spent a lot of the first 18 months of Arteta's reign waiting players out, waiting for their contracts to expire, waiting for them to leave so that he could get the players he did want. Um, and I think there's something similar up front. Now, the guys up front, they're all good players. Um, so it's not quite like they're not disruptive. There's not, um, you know, there's not an issue there like there has been with other players, for example. And they're all like, they're all useful. They just don't go together. And because they're all so expensive, we haven't been able to do anything about it. Um, and other than, I guess, bring in two very, very talented players from the academy. But. We like Arteta can't go and spend fifty million on another striker because we already got two fifty million strikers sitting there. It, it's very clear that he doesn't want Pepe, uh, which I understand. But he costs seventy two million. We can't just go and spend seventy, you know, that kind of money on someone else. So we're, we're trying to bleed. I think some of these players out a little bit, and it's just going to take some time to do that. It will start this summer because Lacazette will have to be replaced. And I think the replacement for him will be kind of a hybrid between in the short term, it will be a replacement for Lacazette, but in the long term, it will be a replacement for Aubameyang. I think that's the way that will go. Pepe, Lord knows, I think that that's one where he's probably going to end up going on a free. But what I'd like to see happen is for maybe for us to cut our losses, even if we can't sell Pepe and just say, look, Martinelli's getting your minutes because that's that's a more sensible long-term strategy for us. But but I, I, I do think we, we've got some creativity issues. We do have issues in attack. That That isn't, I don't think... I don't think Arteta's ideal is to play 4-4-2 with Lacazette and Aubameyang up front. I don't think that's what he wants. I think what he's he's doing is is trying to, I guess, make do. Um, but what I'd be interested in um, overall is the reaction to this game overall as a whole. But I do wonder if we'll go back to the 4-2-3-1. Not necessarily confine this system to the to the rubbish bin it's something we can come back to but I do wonder if he'll go back to that 4-2-3-1 and have that kind of Smith Rowe Saka and Erdegaard buzzing around the Bamiyang um, trying to trying to get a bit better at creating things but we, we talked in recent weeks as well about Erdegaard and about you know what's his role and should we be worried I mean if you're Erdegaard coming out of this weekend this is where you say okay this is where my opportunity is we were loose in possession we're not creating this is my opportunity now to show my value to this team. So even though Erdegaard didn't really have much of a part in this game, I expect, I'd, I'd expect and hope that there's kind of a reaction from him as well for him to say, okay, Lacazette's had his fun, um, but we're missing these things and I can bring them. So like there are some systems, uh, some issues with that attack that frankly are not going to go away until some of the players go away and we get some others in. Um, so I do think there's an element of make, do and mend um, in this attack. That said, we're making, do and mending with good players. Like they're not jokers. Um, and you, I think you can argue that we should be getting more out of them. But there, there is that that balance issue that that I do think is a tricky one um in fairness to Arteta I think it is quite tricky like I'm not reading any great solutions from anyone <laughs> you know why it's tricky you can't jettison Smith Rowe and Saka that would be idiotic you mm-hmm. have to build around them but you don't know for sure they're going to be 15 20 goal scorers like you don't no, know no. that no. You, you know and so 
the only way you get to be really good as a team is by scoring a lot of goals. There are no good teams that don't score, right? And so you're you're committed to building around young players with the hope that they will produce that goal-scoring output and end product, but you don't know it for sure. And uh, Paul, I, I want to turn the corner here and just have a final comment on on where we are in, in the table and whatnot, but you want to just quickly finish on uh, goal-scoring? Um, yeah, so during the summer, I think I talked a lot about my concern about where the goals were going to come from, especially with the yeah, young man. Smith Rowe has stepped up. I don't know if he can keep doing it, but that's like that's phenomenal. Yeah, for anyone who cares about underlying, like he's dramatically outperforming underlying, but I'd argue that's partly because of taking up good. Anyway, go for it. <laughs> yeah, and we've, and we've seen him getting into those positions. It's not like those were the only times he got in those positions and he scored those times. He's he's doing it repeatedly, making yep. those runs. He's going to keep getting those goals. Um, Odegaard, to me, is the answer because I think uh, Tim said it exactly right. We mostly have a creativity problem. If you get Obama Yang enough chances, he'll start putting them away. And uh, I know there's an interest and an infatuation with this with the four three three approach, and I share it to some degree. Odegaard is not that player. I've I watched a, quite a bit of him before he joined us. It's not like he just he's not a midfielder. He's the guy who drops in, and I know you you discuss the topic of should he drop in and drop in so deep and I think he should and um, that's where he you get your third midfielder from with Odegaard dropping in and becoming the third midfielder but running straight back up to the number 10 spot and creating him like it hasn't super worked so far this year but we haven't really used it very much um, and we haven't been very good when we tried it early on so I think we're going to pivot back to four-two-three-one with Odegaard doing Odegaardy things, mostly over on the right there, and hopefully that's where we stay in the final third, start to create and start to get these guys into the box. That has to be the plan, and that's what I think we'll start to move to now. Yeah, I, I do want to make a comment about people looking at this game and saying, "Well, West Ham beat beat." Liverpool and Brighton were able to draw them. So, you know, this argument that you can't do anything against Liverpool is nonsense. Like, the transitive property doesn't work in football. It doesn't. Tottenham Hotspur beat Manchester City. Manchester City destroyed us. We destroyed Tottenham. Liverpool beat United 5-0 at Old Trafford. Right? The West Ham game, where West Ham won, West Ham had less possession than we had in this game. Had the same number of final third entries and the same number of completed passes in the penalty area. Games just are different and they go different ways and trying to compare them is tricky and impossible. I mean, Wigan won an FA Cup the year they went down. Was that a good Wigan team or a bad Wigan team? We beat City and Chelsea to win an FA Cup when I don't think we were a very good team. So it's just, you know, the the transitive property I don't think works. It sucks that we made the game so easy for Liverpool, but I don't think that says much about us. I think, Tim, here's the reality. There are three teams in the Premier League playing a different sport from everybody else. Mm -hmm. Chelsea, City and Liverpool are just beyond everybody by such a big gulf that you can't even measure it. And then there's the messy middle. And we are in the messy middle. And I think from fourth to ninth, you could tell me an order that it finishes in and I'd believe you. And you could tell me it was separated by four or five points and I'd believe you. And so I think there's a lot of noise in the signal. There are people that want to look at our XG, our goal scoring, our underlying. Here's the problem. We had three games to start the season where we used terrible players mostly and had two games against the two that are separate from the group. Then we had a long run where we did well against really bad teams mostly, the softest portion of our schedule. 
and then one game against maybe the best team in the league. So there's a lot of noise in the signal. There's the noise of the first three games. Do you throw those out? Do you just count the easiest games of your... Well, that doesn't really work, but do you throw out the hardest games? I just look at this as we shouldn't be cut adrift from top four because no one's that much better than us. And if we do, that is an indictment. But I also don't know that we're better than any of that group. Is that a fair summary for you? And is it fair to say that this game doesn't change any of that? Yeah, absolutely. That's a completely fair summary. We'll know more by Christmas, um, I think. I think all of us expected to lose this game, maybe not 4-0, and maybe that is um, bringing us down to earth a little bit, which which is completely justifiable. But we'll know more after the next few games. And really what I was looking for this season was to be... Um, was just to be able to beat up on the smaller teams. And and we're still not doing that, by the way. You know, 1-0 against Norwich and Watford at home. Uh, we fully deserve to win those games, but I, I wouldn't mind seeing like a 3-0 or a 4-0 here and there. I think that that would indicate um, a big kind of progression for this team, a little bit more health uh, for the reasons we discussed in the attacking uh, in the attacking third. And I think the Newcastle game is is a really good measure for that because Newcastle, that's a team I think we beat them 4-0 or maybe 3-0 last season. Um, and so we, we should be looking at something similar again, I think, um, the game state notwithstanding. So I, I think you're right. There's a lot of noise in the signal. I think you're right in what you say about the league that anywhere between fourth and ninth, it's it's up for grabs now, to coin a phrase. Hmm. And And really for us, it's all about the reaction to this. I think there's a lot that Arteta can do with this game. We've said there are learning points. I tweeted on Saturday evening, I'd much rather Tavares and Lukonga making these mistakes than Willian and Cedric. But I, I don't take for granted that just because you lose 4-0 with kids that you learn something. You, you know, education is an active process. Um, you know, to educate is a verb. You still have work to do. And and I think there is stuff that Arteta can do with this game. And there is a balance between compartmentalizing it and learning from it. And that's an interesting and, and probably a tricky balance. And you can't just take for granted that, oh, they're young players, they'll learn from it. I mean, maybe it will crush some of them. Um, mm. You never know. I, d- I don't think it will, but it might. We've seen it before. We've seen talented young players at Arsenal get crushed. Um, and so we need to find some of that stuff out. But I do think it, it's all about the reaction to this. It's all about finding that balance between learning from it and compartmentalising it and just going and beating Newcastle handily on Saturday and then competing at United away, competing Everton away and taking points and Leeds away and games like that and handling like the slightly more condensed schedule for us, going through to the semi-finals of the Carabao Cup. I, I think by Christmas we'll get a real picture of how much higher than eighth, if if any higher, that Arsenal can finish. Because it's conceivable they could finish there again. Um, but you're right, there's there's small details. And a lot of those small details, I think, will be, will at least, well, they won't be decided, but they'll become clearer in the next six games or so. Yeah. Paul, you can have the final word there. There's nothing about this game that changes what the goals are, or in my view, changes where we are. If you told me we finished ninth, or if you told me we finished fourth, I could believe it. The goal is to do the latter, not the former. But there shouldn't be anyone that runs away from us. So we're in the messy middle. And there are things we need to fix if we want to be at the upper end of the messy middle, and things that if we don't fix, I think we will finish off in the lower end of the messy middle. Fair? Yeah, I like... 
I wouldn't go with the. Uh, I know what you're saying, and uh, I should just say yes, right? But <laughs> Maybe I'll just don't. <laughs> don't. <laughs> um, but but as I listen to it, like we're not going to be ninth, we're not going to be eighth. The question is, are we seventh, sixth, or fifth? And I think West Ham are strong uh, in that group. So while I basically agree with you, I think there's a little bit of a spread. I'd be really shocked. I picked like, a number at random. I yeah, didn't yeah, necessarily I mean it, yeah, yeah. But, but let me ask you this. If I told yeah. you we finished a point behind any of West Ham, Spurs, United, Brighton, Palace, Leicester, Everton, like you wouldn't think it's impossible for us to finish behind any of those teams I named. Right. And so like, uh, I, those so teams yeah, could all finish within three points of each other. It's crazy. I agree with you, except like if we, it shouldn't be Everton. Yeah, uh, fair enough. Yeah. It should not. Who'd you say, Leicester? It should not, not at this point be Leicester. Uh, I could see Spurs with Conte. I could see a new United manager with the depth they have. So I, I, I'm quibbling around the edges. I agree with your your core point. I think it's a good point. Um, I do think. I do think that there's three or four teams going for fourth, fifth, and sixth. I'd be really disappointed if we don't make the top six this year, uh, where I would have cut Arteta more slack the season before and the season before. Like, we better be fucking unlucky not to get sixth. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. I, do you think it's fair, Paul, that uh, for me, because you know how I look at football, so maybe I'm just totally off base here, but that – he still has to show us that consistently this team will produce top half and ideally top third of the table attacking metrics. And if we can't do that, A, we won't meet our goals for the season, and B, we're probably not going to get where we need to go just on this project. I hate to use the word, but it's the word of the moment. Yeah, look, at the moment, sometimes teams are a bit weird with metrics, and I think we might just be a little bit weird at the moment. So I'm not... uh, I agree with the proposition. I'm not hung up on our numbers. I'm. I really am using my eyeballs and thinking we're struggling to create things in the final third. But I think we're really fucking close. I think we're a very good team. And I think we're building. And I think over this season, the tra- trajectory is good. So I'm not super freaking out, and I'm not too worried about the metrics. Um, I'll be gutted if we don't get sixth or better. I think agreed. Totally agree. You know what's really funny, you guys? I was thinking about this. Remember when we'd finish top four every season but get hammered by Barca or Bayern in the Champions League? Yeah. Like, at that time, the Premier League was kind of down a little bit, and we never really got mad about... I mean, we got mad about getting hammered by Barca and Bayern, but we kind of understood it. You kind of have to look at Liverpool and City and Chelsea now, kind of like we looked at Bayern and Barca then, if you know what I mean. You are playing the absolute best. One of those teams is going to win the Champions League this season, unless maybe it's Bayern. And so, you know, and Chelsea won it last season. So I I guess you almost have to compartmentalize those games. I just know it's hard to do. Look, this hurt. It is Newcastle at home next week. Save your outrage for if that doesn't go well. That's a game we should win. The attack should play well. We have every reason to do it. We have a full week to focus on it. And I will be 
fat and tired and full of turkey still when that game kicks off at 6.30 a.m. local time on Saturday. And I hope that you look forward to an instant reaction full of me probably burping into the microphone and celebrating our 10-0 victory. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, pause. Woohoo! Tim's on Twitter. Stoberto, thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. I know we're going to have you on some instant reaction pods coming up soon too, so I'm looking forward to having you back for that as you will not be match side for all those. Tim, um, 7 p.m. kickoff now for the Barca game. I think it's going to be a pretty packed Emirates. A lot of people should go, yeah? Yeah, yeah, hope so, hope so. They've done it um, so that they don't get whacked with a 10,000 cap because West Ham and Spurs are at home on the same night. So um, they're they're close to the 10,000 tickets sold. So oh, that's great um, Arsenal are going to be doing their marketing in the next fortnight or so. So, um, yeah. I think we'll do some ticket giveaways too. Let's let's shoot for that. Okay, that'll do it for us. Um, rewatch coming up if you can stomach it. Premier League roundup so we can go into the, the United situation um, over on the Patreon side of things. I'm also going to update our Patreon stuff and, and try to get a subscriber side for Spotify. Let me know on Twitter or somewhere if that's something you want, because I know the fact that those pods don't go into Spotify. They go into the Apple player. They go into the Google player. They go into all the players except Spotify. So I'm going to fix that with a workaround if enough people want it, because I think people probably do, hopefully. Um, otherwise, we love you. We'll have a lot more news and other things coming out. In the meantime, uh, take care of yourself and anyone else. Enjoy the holiday. And uh, if you're not joining us on Patreon, which is totally fine, we will talk to you on Friday. We love you, and we'll talk to you after Arsenal 10, Newcastle nil. Headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing. But you know better, and your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com